Amen. Would y'all pray with me? Father God, you are a holy God. You are a just God. You are a God who is full of grace and mercy. With steadfast love and faithfulness, you have endured with great long-suffering your people. So we thank you for psalms like this, the, the story psalms that tell us the history of Israel and put us in the same history, the history of your dealings with a rebellious people, how you've treated them and how you will treat us. And so, Lord, would you, would you grant this morning as we give our attention to your word that your spirit would come and teach and equip us, ground us um, in the faith of Christ and Lord, we do pray that um, after, after some weeks of meditating on this psalm, spending our, our time in this psalm, God, that we would not be like our fathers who were rebellious, um, but that we would set our hope in you. So would you come and would you teach and would you uh, teach through me, Lord, preach this sermon and, um, and use me to do it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you are in Psalm 78. Now, the, uh, the, we're, we're only going to be looking, we're going to start in verse 9 and uh, go 9 through 43. And so um, last week we looked at, uh, at verses 1 through 8. And so um, what I want to do this morning is I want to I talk to you to introduce this with the idea of a foil, not like tinfoil, but foil as defined as something that stands in stark contrast and emphasizes the distinctive characteristics of another thing. So you're setting one thing by another and saying, okay, using it as a foil, what is, how is this like this? And, and, uh, and we're learning from that. So we're, to, we're told in the psalm at the beginning that we're, to, um, that we're to tell the next generation the stories of God so that they would set their hope in God and so that they would not be like rebellious Israel. So that's the idea is we want to tell this story so that we can set our hope in God. Now, it's interesting because the psalm starts off by saying, I will open my mouth in a parable and utter a dark saying from of old. So there's some mystery here, but the mystery is, uh, is kind of like a... Um, it's hard to see what the mystery is because you look at it and you say, well, it's a, uh, it's a story of Israel's unfaithfulness and of God's faithfulness to them. And so obviously it has to do with us not being like them. Like that's, that's the point of the psalm is like we would just read this and say, well, they didn't believe in God. And so we need to believe in God and get our stuff together. But that's not that's that's partly true. But it's not the thrust of the parable, the dark saying. Do you know what the thrust of the parable, the dark saying is? Is that we are just like this almost all the time. That we continually struggle with believing that God is capable and willing to do what he promised. And so on the one hand, we absolutely want to read about them and see where they failed and that we would set our hope in God and try and endeavor in his power not to fail in the same way. But there's another aspect to the psalm, and that is to understand that when we fail this way, God is still gracious, and he's still faithful, and he still comes, uh, comes after us. So yesterday, uh, just as a way to 
uh, drive this point home. Yesterday, I went skydiving um, in connection with a, um, with a fundraiser for Habitat for Humanity and uh, never been skydiving before. And so um, I wasn't nervous until like we are on the Cessna and like we start going up and I'm like, I I'm gonna have to jump out of this airplane. Uh, and there's a guy behind me who shares a name with my big brother and height. He's a big old, big old dude. His name is Matt. And uh, we had gone through all of this training and they were like, okay, so when we jump out of the plane, make sure you're holding here, you're doing this, like all of these things. And I'm like, I'm going to forget everything because I'm jumping out of a plane. Like I'm not going to remember any of this. And so when we're on the plane, super noisy. Matt is like, hey, sit up in my lap for a little bit. I'm like, okay, don't like this, but. So I sit in his lap and he like buckles me in. He's like, okay, I got you here. And, I got... and he's going through all of these safety measures. And then he goes through the entire training again. This is what you're supposed to do. As soon as we jump out, I want you to do this, you know, banana, what, like all of these weird, weird things. And the whole time I'm thinking like, I'm going to forget this. And then at the end, when he had done all of the training, he goes, hey, listen, at the end of the day, you can forget everything. It's my job to make sure that you don't die. I've got you. And so that's really helpful. It's a really helpful picture. We're going to look at all of these things where Israel just frankly screwed it up. And we screwed up the same way. And so we want to look at this and we want to say, okay, what's our training? What are our orders? And how do we do this right? But at the end of the day, Christ as our big brother in the faith says, hey, the parable here is I got you. I'm not gonna let you go splat, okay? So everybody just relax, all right. So the question that we have before us today is the question that Israel had is, will God, will the Lord be honored because of us or will he be honored in spite of us? God is honored through these things in spite of his people's faithfulness. Now that's obviously not what we wanna shoot for, but we can take hope that when we screw it up, um, his grace is there to cover. So, if you write in your Bible, write out beside verse 9, uh, the word sequence. The, the word sequence. So what I want to show you is I want to show you how Israel goes about sinning against the Lord to begin with. So, um, so we're going to we're going to start in verse 5, get the running context, and then we'll dig into verses 9 through 11. He, meaning God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and that they would arise and tell them to their children so that, so this is the purpose, this is why we teach the Bible, so that people, our children especially, would set their hope in God, their expectation in God. And that they would not forget the work of God. So this idea of remembering is a mega theme of this psalm. So setting their hope, not forgetting the work of God, keeping His commandments. Lastly, so that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And so we need to be asking the question, how did they screw it up? We don't want to be like these guys, so this is our foil. What were they like, and then how can we be different? So he's going to describe what they were like negatively in verse 9, starting in verse 9. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back 
on the day of battle. So they were cowards. Now, there's, uh, I, I think I'm in a minority um, interpretation of this, but I take this in verse 9, because of the timestamp of the psalm, I take this as Numbers 13, the story of the 12 spies going up to the land. They spied out the promised land that God had sworn to them. And when they came back, the, the majority of the spies, 10 of them said, we can't do this. There are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers in their sight, and they're going to eat our children. It's literally what they say. Caleb and Joshua, our men, they say, uh, they say we can do this. We've got to do it. Uh, trust the Lord. Let's go. Uh, and the 10 spies convinced Israel that they could not do it and so they turned their back on the day of battle and they would not go in. So they they lived out this this cowardice that comes from disbelieving in the power of God. So they there's there's cowardice in verse 9 and then in verse 10 there's straight disobedience. Now watch this. The Ephraimites armed with the bow turned their back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant but refused to walk in his law. So that's the second step is they're not keeping his covenant. And then the third in verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. So you have cowardice and disobedience, which are always bedfellows, always bedfellows. When you're, when you're disobedient to the Lord, it's always going to lead you to cowardice. But there's a third thing there. Uh, and, and I would say that the verse 11, their, their, their fail in verse 11 is what gave rise to the other two things. So you've got cowardice and you've got disobedience. But I think the thing that came first is in verse 11, that they forgot his works, the wonders that he had shown them. Okay, that's their prime, their, their prime disobedience. And so here's the sequence. See if this resonates with you and your walk with the Lord. That... Typically, we tend to forget God's work, and then we don't keep his word, and then we turn in the day of battle. So it typically goes like that, that we, that we forget what God has done, forget what God has done, and then we don't keep his word, and therefore we run when he tells us to stand. We flee when he tells us to fight. But it always starts with forgetting his, uh, forgetting his work. And so is it any wonder that when we gather in the body of Christ and, and receive our, um, our rhythms of worship from the Lord, is it any wonder that all of them are aimed at our remembering what God has done, right? So, so all, of our, uh, all of our means of grace when we come together, you have an elder that starts your service off with just reading the word of God over you so that you'll hear it, so that you'll uh, respond to it. We sing God's word, we pray God's word, we confess God's word, we preach God's word, and in a little bit, we're going to eat and drink God's word. And that feast is a feast of what, Christian? It's a feast of remembrance, right? Do this in remembrance of me. And so Israel's key fail is that they forgot. In the same generation that went through the Exodus, they forgot that God is a God of wonders and work for his people. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Isn't that astounding that in the same lifetime, you could go through all of the plagues in Egypt. You could go through the Passover. You, should, you could go through the Red Sea and then forget that God did that for you. Now, if you've been walking with the Lord for any number of years, 
you have those things in your past where you said, God, I'm at an impasse and I need you to show. And he showed and we just forget. And so when we forget, we're surrounded by circumstances and we say, man, there's no way out of this. And so we don't set our hope in God. And so I want you to, to note well the sequence of their sin, forgetting God's work, not keeping his covenant, which leads to cowardice on the, in the day of battle. Armed with the bow, they turned their back on the day of battle. So that's sequence. Now, beside verse 12 through 20, I want you to write the word interruption. He's talking about one of the most frustrating things. Have you ever been trying to tell a story and you keep getting interrupted and sidetracked and you're like, would you just shut your pie hole and listen to my story? This, this text reads like that to me, where the psalmist wants to recount all of the grace that God has dumped on his people, but he keeps having to interrupt himself by telling them, uh, telling us how God's people rebel. So watch the timestamp. It's interesting because he doesn't go all the way back to, to go through the Exodus. He's, this is post-Exodus uh, type of work that he describes of God. So what exactly? This is the question we need to ask. I told you that all of their disobedience was rooted in the fact that they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. So what did they forget? What was it that they were forgetting? Well, in verse 12, in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. He performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. Um, so everything in the Old Testament looked backward to the Exodus, where God redeemed his people. Everything in the New Testament looks back to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. It's the new and better Exodus, which is why we're always looking back to Christ and then looking forward to when he comes in remembrance. And so he's going to recount what God, the wonders that God did for them. In verse 13, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. Um, you tend to think that you would remember that, right? That walking through the sea on dry ground with water on either side, that you would tend to remember that, but they forgot it. They forgot that he made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all night with a fiery light. And so, uh, so he's, again, he's recounting what God did for them and this is after the Exodus. So he did amazing things in the Exodus. And now as, he, as they pass through the Red Sea, he's going to do all of this, these great things with them. And so he marks for them his presence. He gives them, listen, this is an amazing thing. He gives them a visible representation of his, of his covenant nearness to them. It never went away. Cloud by day, shielding them from the sun. And fire by night, giving them light and giving them guidance. And that never went away. In all of their worst sin and rebellion, they did in the shadow of the cloud and in the light of the fire, of the pillar of fire. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. So they are supplied with abundant water in the middle of a desert. Now that's hard to do. Uh, Paul says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians that the this rock that uh, that God is going to strike in, in verse sixteen, He made streams of uh, He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Paul tells us the rock that followed Israel in the wilderness was Christ. It's a picture of Christ. 
where if, if you know the story well, Moses, the first time Israel is grumbling and saying, we need water, we need water. God speaks to Moses and he says, take your staff, strike the rock and water will come out. He did it. And then there's a second time where uh, it's, the, it's presumably the same rock. And God tells Moses, I want you to speak to the rock. Don't, he, he just says, speak to the rock and water will come out. And Moses strikes the rock a second time. And that's the last straw where God says, you, Moses, are not going to enter the promised land because you struck the rock and didn't treat me as holy. Well, why? Why is that such a big deal? I think it's because Christ is crucified once for all. And that uh, Christ is crucified for sinners. And now that that has been done, we, uh, he, the rock was struck once. And now when you need forgiveness, when you need new provision of mercy, you speak to the rock, you confess your sins. But Christ is never re-crucified. So the streams, this is all of God's provision. You've got uh, the divided sea. You've got the, pillar of, uh, you've got the pillar of cloud and fire. He splits rocks in the wilderness. He gives them uh, drink abundantly. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers. And then he interrupts himself. So that's the idea of the interruption. Yet, yet, they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They, if you, if you write in your Bible, circle the word tested. It's very, very important. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They tested God. We would say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to test the Lord? The, a, a, great, um, a great text on this is Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is going through the temptation uh, a, lot of, a lot of us misunderstand the second temptation where Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, throw yourself down. And, and, uh, and, and so we think that like maybe uh, is Jesus being tempted with suicide? Like what is, he, what is he doing there? Well, Satan tells Jesus, throw yourself down because it's written that he will bear you up. He won't let your, your foot be harmed. And so you're this circumstantially nobody knows you we know that uh god said this is my son in whom i'm well pleased right after his baptism but now nobody knows that you're the messiah nobody cares about you and so if you'll just throw yourself down pinnacle of the temple all of israel is there they'll watch god rescue you and you'll be vindicated and jesus responds by saying you shall not put the lord your god to the test okay so this is why we don't do things like you know, we uh, like like Elijah uh, did, which was a special moment in Israel's history. But this is why we don't say things like, look, we're going to put God to the test and say, God, uh, consume Lord's Supper in a, in a pillar of fire. And then we'll all believe in you like like Elijah did with the um, with the prophets of Baal, where it was like um, uh, battle evangelism. That's why we don't do things like that. We trust the Lord regardless of our circumstances. We don't put him to the test, but they did. They demanded of Moses, they said, this is what we want. And then they asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? If he provides for us, we'll believe in him. If he doesn't, we won't. And so they put him to the test in their heart by demanding the food that they crave. And they spoke against God. Now watch this, this is astounding. What did they say against God? They said, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Think about that for a moment. These are the people who watched God break Egypt. And what are they struggling with believing? Not his willingness, which is that even that would be hard to excuse them for. 
but they're disbelieving his ability. Now, lest we be too harsh with the Israelites, do you know the very first person to disbelieve the abilities of God to do what he said? It was Moses. It was Moses. Can I read this to you? Uh, this is in Numbers chapter 11. If you want to uh, turn there with me, you can, or if you just want to write it down in your psalm. Um, listen, to, listen to Numbers uh, verse, uh, this is Numbers chapter 11, verse 18. God is speaking to Moses, and he says, I want you to say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Have you ever thought that, Christian? It was better to just live in my sin than to try and endeavor to, uh, to do life with God. It was better for us in Egypt. That's what the people say. God says, Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. And you shall not eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days. We get the idea, God, how many days? You're going to eat meat a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why do we come out of Egypt? So God says, look, the people have tired of my manna and they, they crave meat. So I'll give you meat, but I'm going to give you so much meat. It's going to come out of your nostrils like vomit. You're going to get tired of it. Now, how, how would you respond to that when God says, you know, when you say, well, we want this thing. And he says, not only, you know, you're, you're doubting my provision. And so I'm going to so bury you in it. It's going to feel like a curse. What would you say? Listen to what Moses said. But Moses said, the people among whom I am numbered, they num uh, uh, um, among whom I am, number 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Now listen to this. Listen to Moses' sarcasm. At that idea that God is going to feed them meat, he's, he's incredulous. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Moses disbelieved in the provision of God. This, the, the New Testament counterpart to this is the fishes and loaves where Jesus says, you know, how, uh, how much money do we have? And Philip says, Lord, if we had 200 denarius, it, would be, it wouldn't be enough. If we, could, if we had all that money and we could buy food, it wouldn't be enough for anybody to just have a taste. And Jesus says, you know, uh, ha have the people sit down. We've got a little bit and I'm going to overly abundantly supply but this is always, this is always the idea, is that we, um, is that we have this this belief, this conviction that God can't do what He has promised, that He cannot do what He has promised. So, uh, right down beside uh, verse eighteen, the word conviction. It's the conviction that they have that God is unable. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they crave. They spoke against God, saying, "Can God? Can?" God spread a table in the wilderness? Can God really pay my bills? Can God really do what I'm asking him to do? Can God really provide forgiveness of this sin? Can he really do it? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide the meat? Do you see 
do you see the break in thought? It's like provision, disbelief, provision, disbelief. Like, why don't you just put the provision up here in the disbelief? He's shuffling them together to show how frustrating it is that these people walking with God, and, and we do the same thing, that God's provision is always met with our disbelief in his provision. Like, uh, Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And we are just not satisfied unless he's given us the next 20 years worth of bread. Okay, this is our conviction. They spoke against God saying, can God. So two, two ideas here that I want to think with you on. Number one, there's no such thing as neutral unbelief. So listen, they ask a question which seems like a pretty fair question. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? That's a, maybe a fair question. But look how the psalmist describes that statement, that question. They, he describes it as not they wondered whether or not God could do it, but rather he says they spoke against God, saying, can he spread a table? So there's no such thing as neutral unbelief, okay? This is just old-fashioned rebellion against his word. He's promised to provide. And secondly, uh, I've already uh, shared that with you, that it's, it wasn't just God's people who disbelieved. It was Moses who disbelieved first. Okay, So we are forever assuming that our limitations apply to God. Right, we're, we're forever assuming our limitations apply to God. I was watching uh, this, uh, this highlight reel of the Masters from a couple of years ago where this guy was like, deep in the woods and he's there's like one strip of clearing back to the fairway and the and the pin is like way over here you can't even see it and the pin is like in front of him and he's hitting this way and the announcers are like what is he what is he doing that's the stupidest thing and he's got this like i think he was hitting a really short club anyway he gets up and on purpose slices the trash out of this ball and lands like two feet from the cup now, what's funny about that, and the reason it applies here, is like we're always assuming God's that our limits are God's limits. Looking at him saying, God, why are you doing it that way? There's no way that this can be done when instead we need to understand that God is not like us. He is not like us. So they had a conviction of unbelief. Now, I want, I want to show you right beside verse 21, the word economy. Right? The word economy, meaning the economy of God, uh, uh, God's economy of sin, okay? Um, ten, uh, let, let me just read it, and then, and then we can think uh, together. So in verse 21, so, so they say in verse 20, can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? So they're disbelieving in God, and in verse 21, therefore, when the Lord heard, so see the therefore, uh, why? What, what's the therefore? What, what's it doing? Well, we've just been told that they disbelieved that he could provide bread and meat. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob and anger rose against Israel because. So circle the, circle the word because. Because they didn't believe in God and didn't trust his saving power. So what I want to, the reason I uh, wrote the word economy there is, is because we have this idea of an economy of, of sin, that there are some sins that are worse than others. And that is true, right? 
James tells us that if you if you violate the law in any one way, you violate, you're guilty of the whole law. And that's that's true as well, that the law is a standard of perfection. And so any sort of any sort of fail just puts you on the guilty side of things. And so it doesn't do to like uh, to measure how much guilt on all those on the guilty side. But Jesus does talk about um, people who are uh, neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And so you would know, right? If I ask you, would you rather me kill your eldest child or steal your lunch money? You might say, neither. Like, I, can I just go for neither? Well, in this scenario, I'm going to sin against you one of two ways. I'm going to kill your eldest or I'm going to steal your lunch money. What are you going to pick? And it's not, do you need to pray about this? Obviously, like, steal my lunch money. So there, there are gradations of sin. And typically in our mind, what really irritates us sometimes is sexual sin. Like, we put sexual sin at the, at the highest or we put murder up at the highest. But let me ask you, what do you think drives, drives God to anger the quickest? When you read this, that when they're disbelieving his provision, disbelieving his power, not trusting his saving power, and that's the reason that, that wrath comes towards them, that a fire was kindled against them, that anger arose against Israel. What sin angers God's most? God most. I think we could uh, we could flip it and say what what about us could honor God the most? It's our belief in Him, and so the pride of unbelief is what angers God more than anything else. Not to ruin your day or mine, but the price of unbelief is the worst sin. The pride of unbelief is the worst sin available to man, and it's also the most common sin in the church. Can you point to anything more common than, than those of us who know the Lord to just sort of disbelieve that he's going to work on our behalf, that he's going to undertake for us? That's, that's the air I breathe, unfortunately. It's just, you know, that, that God has sent us to disciple the nations, and I look at, at, at some small aspect of that and say, like, can God really do that? It's just old-fashioned unbelief. And so how does God respond? Look in verse, uh, uh, yeah, look in verse, uh, let's start in verse uh, 23. How does God respond to their unbelief? Well, it angers him. In verse 23, and yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Did you know that God has only ever provided for disobedient children? Isn't that great news, disobedient child? Like, it's so encouraging. Now, again, back to the, the opening, like, it's not that we want to endeavor to be unbelieving, right? Should, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? God forbid. But when we sin, we do need to take hope from these verses. This is the dark parable that sin again and again and again and God provides for them again and again and again but he's going to provide some other things not just their needs man ate the bread of angels he sent them food in abundance he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens and by his power he let out the south wind and he rained meat on them like dust if you know the story it was quail winged birds like the sand of the sea and he let them fall in the midst uh, in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings now Look at verse 28 and verse 29, and you tell me what would be fitting to read between verse 28 and verse 29. Can God really give 600,000 people meat 
and then he rains quail up to their knees in the middle of their camp, and they can go out and collect meat. So between verse 28 and verse 29, we ought to read something like, Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious feast that you just provided that none of us thought you could do. Man, we were wrong. Instead, they ate, and they were filled, for he gave them what they craved. They just descend upon the feast without any gratitude. And so, before they had finished, before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord arose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. That's their chief sin, is that they will not set their hope in God. They will not trust His saving power. And so He made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When He killed them, this is a great word for us, because we, we, sometimes we look at that, and because we don't really understand about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and we see God providing and then also judging His people and, and disciplining His people, we look at that and we say, man, God, decide. Are you going to be gracious or are you going to be, are you going to discipline? And God would say, my discipline for my people is grace for my people. Look in verse 34. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Has this been your experience ever? That kind, drawing, wooing words of God just don't get through and sometimes he's got to uh, melt the earwax in your ear by heating up your fanny, by, by disciplining you, that's my testimony. That sometimes you have to be broken in order to listen and to respond to God. And so his response to his people is grace and discipline. So they repented and they sought God earnestly when he was taking them out. And then in verse 35, they remembered that God was their rock, their most high, and their redeemer. But Verse 36, so we're all good now, right? No, wrong. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Now, what should we read next? Okay, they've rebelled against him. They don't believe him. He's redeemed them. He's demonstrated, bared his arm, demonstrated all of his glory, uh, uh, shaming their enemies, rescuing them from slavery, providing everything from nothing, and they're not faithful to his covenant, we should read, and therefore he was done with them. But in verse 38, yet he, being compassionate, he atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. Verse 39, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Isn't that astounding? We ought to be wondering at the grace of God here in response to their continued disbelief. What does he do? He remembers what they're made of and he atones for their iniquity because he's compassionate. Does he discipline them? Please say yes. Of course he does. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. This is the mark of his covenant love. Beware if he never disciplines. He, but he remembers in his discipline and in his provision, there's this compassion 
that he's atoning for their sin and their iniquity. He remembers that they were flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Um, can I tell you something? You and I expect way more from ourselves than God does. Do you agree with that? That God knows exactly what you're made of. And so we, we sin and we are shocked and we think, man, God has got to be out there just completely shocked. Now he remembers that you're flesh, the wind that passes and comes not again. Now listen to the psalmist just lament this. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. And again, back to the idea of remembrance. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields and so on. He disciplines those he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. He atoned for their iniquity and remembers because he remembers what they are made of. So listen, God's people, we always wrestle with the chief sin of prideful unbelief, but God always counters that with relentless grace and fatherly discipline. Okay? So the big idea for us is that we would believe in God and trust his power because to forget is to rebel, and to rebel is to run from the battle when he has blown the full charge. Let us remember. Now, if it's true that we can't run from the battle without first failing to keep his covenant, and that we can't, for, we can't fail to keep his covenant unless we have first forgotten his works, then it stands to reason that one of the most important things that we can do as a church is to remember what God has done for us in Christ. Christ is our ultimate provision. We're looking at rebellion. We're looking at God's provision and God's discipline. In Christ, God has provided all of those things. Daily bread, atonement for iniquity, uh, discipline for our sin. He's provided all of those things through His Son, Jesus. Which means that the Lord's Supper is second to nothing at all among the spiritual disciplines of worship. When we gather, there's much we do to exercise the means of God's grace that He has given to us. But this table is the chief. So when we come to the table... We need to come as He has instructed us. Come remembering that His body was broken for us and that His blood was shed for our forgiveness. That He, listen to me, that He was the rock in the, in the desert wilderness of our sinfulness and rebellion and separation from God. And we're looking around saying, there's no way that you can bring us back. And He strikes the rock and we are satisfied. We need to come remembering that our God, who is all-wise, did not just tell us to hear these promises, but He told us to eat and to drink these promises. So let us assume and let us trust that God knows better than we do both how badly we need to remember and how best we are to do so. So come remembering Jesus. And in order to remember, you must come and taste the promise. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. We're going to sing, and then after, uh, after we sing, I'll lay out the elements and, uh, and we can celebrate communion together. Father God, we, we thank you for Israel's story, which is your testimony. 
the testimony that you established in Israel, a testimony of faithfulness to wayward people, a testimony of patience with those who who just assume that your arm is a little too short to be able to save. God, we thank you for we thank you for these stories because it, it lets us set our hope in you that you just like you did not give up on them, you will not give up on us. But God, it also it stirs us up to want greater things. To want to just take you at your word. And so we want to take you at your word here at the table. That as we as we take up the bread, the body of Christ is broken for us. As we take up the cup, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of our sin. That we would not trust our eyes, not trust our minds, not trust our ears, looking at this bread and looking at this wine and saying, how could that possibly help anything? God, we want to take you at your word. We want to eat and drink in joyful remembrance of Christ, trusting that this is a covenant feast and that we can go from this table feeling ourselves, knowing ourselves to be really, truly forgiven in Christ. And so would you come? Would you minister to us as we come to the table? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.